My name is Anda Ginska, and this is Pros and Content. I'm the co-founder and CEO of Notch, a digital content intelligence platform. I'm a massive data nerd who's fallen in love with storytelling. And so on the Pros and Content podcast, we will be featuring a series of really incredible leaders who believe in storytelling and who have different perspectives on the importance, measurement, scalability, and optimization of storytelling. Today on Pros and Content, Anda speaks to Rob Brown, the global CMO of BBVA. Rob is in charge of everything from marketing and digital sales to BBVA's design, behavioral economics, and responsible business practices. That sounds like a lot of responsibility, and above all else, Rob stresses the importance of providing his customers with an incredible experience, both in physical and digital locations. It's a point of differentiation, a way to transition into new markets, and a method of reassuring and proving to the people you serve that you're there to do exactly that, serve, especially in times of extreme difficulty. It's what drives Rob Brown's work every day, and it genuinely shows in our conversation with him. This episode was recorded on May 14th, 2020. We hope you enjoy. Okay, hello everyone. Welcome to another episode of Pros and Content. I'm very excited to be dialing in someone today all the way from Spain, which is basically my favorite country. Um, hi, Rob. Welcome to Pros and Content. Thank you. Thank you for having me. For sure. I'm so excited to have the entire community hear a little bit of your story because it sounds like you've lived a total adventure, especially over the last few days. So um, I think you're, you know, judging by your accent, it sounds like you're originally from the U.S. How did you end up in Spain and what countries have you visited in between? Yeah, it's a, it's a good question. I, um, I have to go back to my childhood a little bit. I spent my time uh, in Taiwan, Belgium and Brazil when I was growing up. So I've had this sort of international experience from a young age. And, and when I had children, I kind of knew I always wanted them to experience some of the same that I had as a child. And so when I was offered the opportunity to move to London for a role at Barclays Bank, I, I basically took the job before they could even offer it to me and, uh, <laughs> and moved to London in 2012 and, and lived there for four and a half years. And then was recruited to Spain to work at BBVA and have been here since 2016. So that's sort of my international adventure. I have a challenge for you. Can you pronounce the full name of BBVA for us? Oh my God, come <laughs> on. That's way too hard. I will totally embarrass myself. I was, when... I was trying to. I was just trying to because I was reading it. It's Okay, I'm, I'm going to do it. You tell me if I'm doing it okay, right. Okay, go. Banco, Banco Bilbao Vizcaya. Argentaria? Perfect. Argentaria? Beautiful. Okay. okay, but to make it easier for you, BBVA is a lot easier. <laughs> I like it. Yeah, that makes sense. I've heard a lot of great things about BBVA um, and especially the growth in Latin America from your competitors for our customers and they're afraid of you. So how did you guys uh, manage to go into Latin America and build such a robust business there over the last few years? Yeah, I mean, BBVA has a long history of finding markets that um, are growth markets. And, you know, obviously it made mo the most sense early on to look to Latin America, given it's a bank that started here in Spain and Spanish speaking. We have always been focused on the Latin American um, region, primarily because our bank is based here in Spain and is Spanish speaking. However, we also have, have uh, looked to other markets that are interesting to us from a number of perspectives. One is Turkey, and Turkey is now our third largest financial institution within the BBVA family in terms of revenue. 
and in the U.S. The U.S., you know all too well, super difficult to break into, 20,000 plus banks. Uh, we have purchased a financial institution in the Sunbelt region of the U.S. So we're sort of across Alabama, Texas, all the way over to California, Florida. And, um, and our, our business there is sort of a regional bank. But the rest of the world, if you're doing research on BBVA, we're often number one, number two in the, in the markets that we're in, largely because of our focus on customer experience, which I'm, I can get a little bit more into the, the things that we're doing in that space. But um, we definitely stand out from our customers in the markets where we have a differentiation on the customer side. So you're this massive challenger brand uh, in in a region like the U.S. Is the goal for the U.S. to get to the same, you know, number one, number two? I mean, if I were wearing my uh, hat sitting on the finance team, yes, that would be amazing and incredible to, to be a number one financial institution in the biggest market in the world. But the reality is that I think we, we've kind of come to terms with the investment required to do that is probably not worth it. And that we're actually doing so well in the Spanish-speaking markets that it's, it's not a goal that is easily achievable. Uh, so we, you know, we continue to it, we take it very seriously in terms of our marketing efforts. We take it very seriously in terms of looking at how we can build our business to the same extent of other countries. Uh, but the reality is we don't have the the budget in the U.S. of a J.P. Morgan Chase, Citibank, you know, the biggest players. It's it's not something that uh, we can do easily. Well, it's interesting because in the U.S., uh, due to the competition, the cost of acquiring new customers must be exponentially higher than in some of these markets where you're going in and in some ways you're growing with the market because there's so much development that you know, so many more people who are uh, who are financially starting to bank and start businesses and so on. So it's it's an interesting, different model. And um, I've always found it fascinating when companies who are disruptors in other markets come into the U.S. and they just go, ah, you know what, not worth it. <laughs> Let's just go build where everyone else isn't. Yeah. So that's yeah. I mean, for cool a, you, you touched on it, but for us, there's a huge portion of the population in in South America that's unbanked. You know, and there's a, a tremendous yeah. opportunity for us to to teach and and help people with their their first banking experience, and and that that's really I think where BBVA does uh, quite well. Uh, and so in the U.S., business is good, it's profitable, it's important to us, but it's not the biggest growth market for us. I'm going to ask you one more question that isn't about marketing because uh, I'm curious how you guys are doing in my native country of Romania. Ah. Uh, <laughs> Yeah, um, good question. We're we're not uh, in we're not in the region, so we're we're really only focused in Turkey in uh, that part of Europe. And as I mentioned earlier, we're we're having seeing phenomenal success in in that market. Uh, you will notice that when when you when you do research on BBVA in Turkey, we are branded. Um, and in a different brand. And we're in the midst of changing that to, to BBVA, but it's Guaranteed Bank that has been around for, for many, many years mm -hmm. and is the number one, number two financial institution in Turkey. 
Um, but if you have an opportunity for me to get into Romania, to, I do. Then, then I actually know the founder and CEO of the Bank of Transylvania, which happens to be the second biggest bank in Romania. So perfect. <laughs> let's connect after. I'm Absolutely. more than happy to put you in touch. That it's actually good. funny. I, I've always told him that this, this brand of the Bank of Transylvania, like no one's basically going to believe that it exists or want to bank <laughs> with it. <laughs> but it's actually one of the best banks. So yes, is we'll the, connect is the, the logo to has it. to be a vampire, otherwise it really oh, doesn't God. make sense. No. <laughs> Actually, I don't even know. It. I think it's just BT. That's the logo because um, it's the Bank of Transylvania and that's how you say it in Romanian. So. <laughs> um, anyway, so jumping into marketing a little bit. So you're the global CMO of BBVA. I'm curious when you go into these new markets, you acquire... Uh, different companies with different brands. What does that transition plan look like? Do you have, yeah. I'm assuming you've done it so many times, you kind of have a plan in place, but what's the timeline to take, uh, you know, a Turkish brand that has a lot of loyalty and switch it to BBVA? Yeah, it's a great question. So, you know, I think when I look at acquisitions, there's always sort of like two philosophies. One is you make an acquisition and you sort of change the brand overnight. You know, you go from red to blue, logo changes, you know, you try to integrate as much operations as you possibly can, take the good with the bad and, and integrate. And then the other is you do a bit of a slower approach and, and a more methodical approach to, to your customers because it, it is a bit of a dramatic change, especially in the financial institution um, area. And, and, you know, you know all too well of the incredible amount of acquisitions that have happened in this space over the course of the last 10, 15 years. Um, and so BBVA, the, the other thing I will say is that BBVA takes this really nice approach to acquisitions. <laughs> Let me explain. So instead of doing the flip the switch and turn the brand over to the new brand overnight, we, we sort of allow for um, a, a, a longer period of time of both brands existing. And so for, for a number of years, in some cases, 15, 20 years, you, you will have seen in our markets both brands. So in the case of Mexico, which is our, our biggest market, it was BBVA Bancomer for many years. So two logos side by side, sort of a, a co-branding um, situation. And we did that for many years. We slowly dropped the green color within Bancomer and moved to blue. And now uh, within the last year, we've moved completely to BBVA. But for many years, it was both logos. Um, and, and I think, you know, part of why we did that is just being sort of nice and, and understanding that that brand in the local market has been there for so long and that customers know the brand so well that disrupting it might have some adverse effects and some attrition in our in our business. Um, but equally, we, we really thrive on learning and learning from the local team and what's worked well and what hasn't. And so to just switch it overnight from headquarters here in Spain really didn't make a lot of sense to us. Uh, but uh, the project I worked on the last year was to, to finally move all of our co-branded situations in all of our regions to one brand. And that, that was a, nine, a year and a half year, year and a half project, 4,000. And by the way, at that point, how many different brands were you trying to bring together as one? 11, 11 different brands. Oh, wow. Yeah, so so it's challenging, and and uh, as you can imagine, a lot of the local employees in many cases had been at these financial institutions for many many years. Lots of loyalty to the company and loyalty to the brand. Equally, a lot of customers. But at the end of the day, what what we through an extensive amount of data and research that we did in each of the markets and experience that I personally had in changing brands, 
people, especially in financial institutions, don't actually care that much about the logo or the brand. What they really care about is amazing experiences. And if you're going to disrupt that as a, as a, as a product of the change in, in brand, then you're going to have real problems in attrition and, and, and the like. Uh, so while it was challenging, it was the right move to finally do. I mean, from, from some, in some cases, from an operational standpoint, cost standpoint, marketing to brands across 11 different regions in the world was challenging. At, at, uh, it was tr- finally getting to a point where it's too challenging for us to manage. Uh, equally, we wanted the entire company to be really and truly under one team. And we felt that if we continued with two brands in all of our countries, that we could never really achieve that. And so that was another big part of, of the employee and the culture of the company was uh, it was part of the, the brand change. That makes sense. That's a huge project. I can't <laughs> believe you actually accomplished it. I mean, I know you're still rolling out some of it, but yeah. I'm curious when you when you now think about um raising brand awareness for for BBVA from basically zero to a hundred in a very short period of time, what are the big uh, strategic initiatives, but also what are some of the most important tactical uh, projects that you're focusing on? Yeah. So when we did the transition to BBVA in all of the the countries, the, the, the main thing that we wanted to do was to reassure our customers of the continued amazing experiences that they had enjoyed with us in the past. And so we started with a global campaign we called New Beginning, where we explained to all customers the change in the logo, which was was critical, and the dropping of the apellidos, the last last name or surname of the the existing financial institutions. Um, And and also we wanted to start to to tease a little bit and and share with them that as a as a now as, as part of a now global financial institution, you would have access to some of the best and most innovative products, regardless of where they are in the world, by being part of this global institution, finally. So let me give you an example. If the best facial scanning is in Turkey. Why are we replicating that tool on our on our devices in every country? Why not just roll out the best in class across all 11 regions? Secondly, we start we have been very fortunate in the last three years in receiving the the world's best banking app by Forrester Research. Uh, And so, again, it was sort of like, well, if we built the best banking app in the world in Spain, why are we trying to do the same thing in all different countries under different operating systems, different technology, different people. Why not just take advantage of the user experience that we've built, the award-winning app, and roll it out across country, all countries? And that was really difficult to do under multiple brands. Colors, you know, fonts, logos, all of those came into play. And, and so the, those were kind of the biggest things that we did as a result of the, the brand transition. Interesting. How how about when it comes to um, the kind of paid versus owned initiative? How much of this effort was let's go meet people where they are versus let's try to get them to come to us where we yeah. could actually immerse them in this new experience? Yeah, I mean, as you can imagine, we have a huge branch network where we have 7000 branches globally. Uh, and in many of our regions, particularly in South America, those are the only um, 
Those are the only interactions that we have with our customers. As you can imagine, yeah. smartphones aren't as prevalent in many of our regions. We talked earlier about the unbanked community. And so we really needed to make sure all of our customers that were coming to human to human interactions, coming to branches, were completely comfortable with the change. And so there was a significant amount of work that took place during that year and a half of talking to frontline employees about the story of the transition to BBVA, the, the fact that we wouldn't disrupt any of the great things that you have experienced, that it really was a access to better products and services by being part of a global brand. And so, so in terms of the the physical side, that was a key component to the transition. As you can imagine, we had a lot of customers coming in like, what, what's happening? Am I now part of a Spanish-only bank? And what does that mean in terms of fees, transactions? You know, all these questions start to, to happen when, when a acquisition like that is, is finally in, implemented. Um, the other thing we did is we're, like all financial institutions, we've been going through a massive digital transformation. I would argue that BBVA has been at it for longer than most banks. We started back in 2007 with the foresight of our chairman and, and CEO. We've been investing heavily in technology since then in anticipation of needing to be super focused on, on digital. As a result, 50, over 50% of our customer acquisitions are through digital. And over 50% of our customers now bank through digital. And when you think about the markets that we're in, it's pretty incredible that, that they are. That is. I was actually going to, I was going to jump in and ask you, uh, how happy are you that the rebrand effort happened, you know, in the last, you know, year or two versus right now? Because <laughs> the physical aspect of what you do, I'm assuming, is completely shut down. Uh, so, yeah, I would love to hear a little bit about how the digital side of the business has grown in the last, you know, few weeks, months. Absolutely. Yeah. So to, to address the physical side, actually, we have reopened um, branches. We're not. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah. So so but with really, you know, strict uh, rules and guidance around how do we manage it for for safety reasons. So, for, for instance, some of our branches here in Madrid, we they actually are completely closed. We let one customer in at a time. We have a skeleton crew within the, the branch itself. Most of our, and I think 70% of our customer service frontline employees are working from home. So it's, you know, it's, it's a gradual opening of the, the branches. But we, you know, we, we felt really, we felt that it was really important to start reopening branches for all of those customers that aren't on digital and all those customers that you know are are super accustomed accustomed to using their local branch plus you know there's a you've you've been reading the news spain was really hardly hit hard um, hit by the the pandemic and now we're sort of in this rebuild phase where we're starting to open up the doors a little bit, starting to open up the terraces on restaurants and allowing some people to have a, a tapa and, and a beer at night. We're starting to allow exercise again. So people are getting back outside. And, and so we're trying to do our part as a financial institution to open up our branches slowly in a, in a super safe way. Um, on the digital side, there's been some really unique and interesting data watching uh, everything happen with our banking app through COVID. My favorite is we're watching the data usage or the usage of our app 
And uh, as you can imagine, it's increased significantly during COVID. However, every night at 8 p.m., it was dropping to zero. Nobody was on the app for, for 20 minutes every night. And at first, we were like, well, there's some glitch in the system, some data problem, something's wrong. And it's actually when everyone is on their terraces clapping for frontline health workers. You know, so it's really just a go- awesome. it's so cool when data tells a story. And, and that for me was yeah. really quite interesting. Wait, so have you have you told that story? Because I'm already envisioning this like content campaign that you could do around it. <laughs> Can you guys help us with that? That'd be great. <laughs> sure. Yeah. <laughs> no, we haven't told It's a great story. I love it. It would be like, oh, like when data becomes human, you know? It's, <laughs> I like it. Maybe we've come up with something good here. <laughs> Perfect. Yeah. No, we haven't really told it. We've told it internally pretty extensively because it is such a sort of a heartwarming story of you know, what happened during that, that 20 minute period? Well, it's people caring, people caring for each other. And, uh, but yeah, there's probably something there. We're in the midst right now of talking about what's our post COVID, you know, sort of, um, campaign for the next step. You know, we're, we're like every other big organization. We've done a ton around hashtag stay at home, you know, a, a ton of efforts around, uh, digital first and using the app versus going to physical branches. But now we need to start thinking about the, the word I said earlier, rebuild, you know, and how do we, we, we th- start interacting with our businesses and employees and our customers and clients around the rebuilding effort. And, and that, that will really be a big part of the next steps for us. So for what it's worth, uh, because we study content across the world, there's been just very clear phases to the creative that you see. And I'm sure you've also seen that YouTube video that kind of in a way, it humorizes how similar some of those early uh, COVID ads were. But yep. we're sort of past that stage. Um, we went through a donation stage of here's what we're doing for the world. Insert, you know, however many millions of dollars or millions of euros or whatever. Um, then there was this this rush to like, how can you survive this? And so there's all this helpful content and informative. And how do you survive it financially? How do you survive it as a parent, etc.? And now there's this focus on a new day. And what does that mean? Um, And what we've really seen work is stories of inspiration and hope, stories that remind us of what make us human. Because I think uh, this virus has robbed us a little bit or a lot of of what makes us human, including having a tapa at the end of the day with a beer. Um, And so bringing that back is so important. And I've actually never been more excited about the role of content because I think it's the first time that brands can truly assume uh, both a commercial as well as a humanitarian role with this content, because all the o- other content that media companies create is just so gloomy, so kind of a lot of fear mongering, you know, anxiety inducing content. And so brands have been stepping up to to create this incredible set of just inspiration and hopeful stories. So hopefully you can you can do that as well going forward. Yeah, I mean, we we've already done some of that. I, I mean, I couldn't agree with you more. Sort of at this moment in time, showing genuine empathy and caring for people is is so important especially for us well for all all uh, industries but but as a financial institution you know people are really struggling the unemployment rate in america is unbelievable nothing since the great depression and you know so we're we're really having to think about how do we market our products in a way that shows that empathy and it's really difficult right it isn't the time to sell products it's the time to connect with people totally 
And so, yep. the, you know, we, we've really taken a phased approach. I meant I mentioned the campaigns around stay at home. You're absolutely right. Ours really wasn't that much different than all the others on that YouTube video. However, what I'm most proud of, I think, at BBVA is that prior to that, we worked really hard to be a part of the solution. We really wanted to figure out in Spain, starting with Spain, but it moved on to Mexico next. We wanted to lead by example. And we had three criteria that our chairman and CEO set. The first is save lives. The second, it sounds crazy as a bank, but let me explain. The second was to alleviate economic impact. And the third was to help others. And so in terms of saving lives, we started thinking, well, what do we need first? We need ventilators and we need masks, right? Remember in the early days, it was really difficult to get those. Yep. Uh, before the prices skyrocketed on, on ventilators, we were in talks with companies in China. We have a great relationship with organizations in China. We have a, a business there. Uh, we have amazing employees there. And we, we got access through... It's a crazy story through a startup organization that we work with. We got access to a ventilator manufacturer who got us 2,800 ventilators, 400,000 wow. face masks, all within a few days. So wow. we secured those. Then it was the logistics of how do we get them here? And by the way, we, we secured really low pricing that just one week later with the pandemic and the craziness that was going on in the U.S., the prices skyrocketed, masks couldn't be found anywhere. And, you know, it was, it was a, a, wow. a, an initiative by our company that I'm super proud of, you know. And so as a result of all that work, including crazy stories of how do you actually get them to Spain from China during the pandemic, we leveraged an airline organization that flies clothes into Spain on a regular basis. We put our ventilators on the plane full of clothes. I mean, literally like these crazy things were <laughs> happening. Vendor relationships were stretched to the, to the nth degree to, to formulate a plan in a week's time. But here's what happened as a result. We didn't do any marketing around this. It wasn't the purpose, but there was a tremendous amount of press and a tremendous amount of great content that came out of this this campaign to help people to save lives. And so for us, it was put all everything else on the back burner. Let's start with the saving lives. Secondly, let's talk about the economic impact. This, and, that, and what we did there, we started looking at our, our, our um, small business owners, the ones that are so suffering the most because all of them have their, their doors closed. So we started helping them with liquidity, helping with loans, helping them get through the, the really difficult period. And then finally, we looked at how do we help our customers? And, and you know, things like flex, flexible payments, helping them potentially not have payments for a period of time on loans for mortgages, credit cards, fees, all of that. And, and so all of that was way more important than any marketing campaign around hashtag stay at home. And, and the things that have happened as a result of that through our, um, our team both from an employee morale standpoint, our customer feedback and the press that we're getting are way more important to our brand than, you know, any, any campaign around this time. You know, listening to you talk, it, a couple of things come to mind. First, I feel like almost every single person was in a reactive mode. Um, all brands had to say something. And I think it, there's nothing wrong with putting the message of stay at home out there. It, it was 100% the right message to put out. Totally agree. I think, you know, very, some brands decided to be a lot more transactional during this crisis, and I think they're going to hurt because of it. Yeah. 
Um, but the vast majority of brands said the same thing. This is not the time to push product down people's throats. This is the time to be there for them and create value. And a lot of companies that I've talked to have done incredible things. Like listening to you, I feel like you have so many stories. And I hope that now when you have a second to realize, you know, all this data that you have and all the incredible things you've done, you'll actually take the time to put those stories out there. And I think we'll start seeing a lot more of that. And it will they will finally start having flavor, if if you will, because previously almost everyone was like, okay, we'll stay at home. But now it's going to be a lot more personal. It's going to be a lot more about the brands that are putting them out there. So I think you're you're sitting on a treasure trove of stories and I'm excited <laughs> to see what comes out in the next few weeks. Yeah, well, I, I'm, I'm actually... Go ahead. Oh, sorry, you go. No, I think, uh, I think it just sort of comes out of leadership at the top of the house at BBVA genuinely cares. You know, so for us, it was absolutely number one priority health and safety of of employees customers and clients and so that's how all of the those great stories have have happened it's top of the house making a strong very difficult decision with board members wondering how are we going to survive this from a financial standpoint standing up and saying none of that matters right now you know the most important thing right now is the health and safety of our our uh, our constituents and and that that really drove those early stories and the the early campaigns and and the efforts of people across the globe to pitch in and help out. Yeah, so I want to I want to address two big topics before we end the session. The first one to ask you a little bit more about content and storytelling and what it means. Um, the second is to talk a bit about leadership because I think a lot of people have either said my company is incredible because of the way they reacted to the crisis or others have said, I really need to change jobs as soon as I can because of how they react to the crisis. So I want to get to that in a second. First, because a lot of our listeners are content marketers uh, or marketers who care a lot about content, I feel like almost all marketers are now content marketers to some extent. I want to hear from you when you think about content, um, how do you define it internally at BBVA? Is it a centralized function? Um, I'm assuming that you have different market leaders that are running the marketing teams. Are the content teams under those leaders or do you have kind of a corporate layer that runs it all? Yeah. So um, we, we have a, a bit of a mix. So first of all, we have CMOs in every country. All the CMOs are responsible for marketing, digital sales, brand, and in some cases, the design of our products as well. So that's the first thing. The second thing is that in corporate and here in Madrid, we have truly one of the most amazing teams I've ever worked with communications and an in-house creative team that is responsible for both internal and external communication content pieces, everything from video uh, uh, internal pieces for employees to video externally on BBVA.com to things we circulate in the, in, in the industry, uh, in the web to, to generate information about BBVA, our products or services, or great things that we're doing like we just talked through. Um, and, and to answer your question around content managers, just within the last year, we have specifically put a person responsible for content in corporate who works with all those CMOs in all the countries, works hand in hand with the creative team and the communications group in, in corporate to ensure that we have an approach that makes sense equally that we learn. So if, you know, communications are working brilliantly in Argentina on a credit card product, let's learn from that, replicate it in Turkey, replicate it in Spain or the U S. And, and so that's the reason for the function in, in corporate. 
Um, That's so cool. And by the way, I feel like the the this is the number one trend in content. There's this overall feeling that content is everyone and no one's job. And more and more organizations are starting to say, actually, we really need someone centrally to start uh, cataloging all of our efforts and understanding what works, what doesn't, so that we can just get better across the board, so that we can learn. Yep. Yeah. My previous life in in another financial institution, you know, communications ran social media and internal and external communications. Then you had the marketing team over here. Then you had the creative team. You had the brand team. Everyone was so mm, siloed and yeah. separate and not working together. We really wanted to avoid that at BBVA. And that's part of the reason why I, my title is the global CMO, but I'm responsible for marketing, our digital sales, the design of our products, behavioral economics, as well as what we do in our communities. So responsible business team sits within our group too, so that it's a cohesive, uh, uh, cohesive story across all of BBVA, not just our brand I stands for this. Our communications team is is flogging this on social media. Our marketing team is trying to market a product. It's one cohesive uh, story. And that's not... The- what about comms? Is comms under the same? No, roof? but we are so close. I mean, I, I, I feel... First of all, BBVA doesn't have a lot. To, uh, we've, we've tried to get rid of every silo that we possibly can, which is one reason why I'm, I'm, I'm leading all of those, those groups. Um, equally, we work really closely together. Com- communications and marketing were connected uh, years ago before I came to BBVA. And I, you know, we, we looked a little bit into it, but the reality is it, we don't need it. We're so connected and so in tune and in line with what we're doing that it, it isn't a reporting structural change we need to make. And is the, is the content leader that you brought on board, I'm assuming they report into marketing, but is there remit to really kind of build that bridge with the comms team as well? Yeah, but, but honestly, it's not even in his goals because they're so close. Not only are they close mm. from a physical standpoint, they're also close personally. They're like the greatest friends. So that, you know, so, that's awesome. So, so no, I, that's not, not even a concern of ours. And I'll give you one example. So when we launched the brand, uh, the, the, there's a number of, of articles about our launch. We launched the brand in every country over a weekend. So literally we had... Signage changed on the majority of our branches. All of our digital devices were all changed over a weekend. It was the most intense period of my entire career. But we had the (laughs) communications team in a war room with us every minute of every day leading up to that. And then the, the, the tail following that, they were involved in every step of it. So they were monitoring every single social media content piece that came in, every comment that came in and feeding it directly to our marketing team, feeding it directly to our chairman and CEO too. So they were fully aware of what's happening. What are people saying? You know, and so they're so connected onto that they're part of our team. That's awesome. That's really good to hear. It doesn't happen as you as you probably know better than I do, but it doesn't happen as much in other organizations. So that's awesome to hear. It's it's partially, I will say, it's partially a cultural thing. So you you know Spain quite well. I mean, people here are extremely friendly. 
We don't really do. I wonder if people are going to continue kissing on the cheek as much. <laughs> I'm already this talking. This is genuinely to, a question. Totally, I'm already talking to my team about. It. I'm like, well, when I see you, no kissing. And they're like, we can't give up kissing. <laughs> That's you're talking about hundreds and hundreds of years of culture change right there. There's no, no, way. I know. Trust me. I mean, my country is the same. When when I take my American friends to visit my family, my dad kisses them like three times, <laughs> and you know, men kissing is just like they their heads explode. Yeah. So yeah, I don't know how that's going to work. <laughs> I don't either. It'll be interesting to watch over the next couple of months. <laughs> Even the, you know, the rule or the laws of uh, uh, the government about terraces opening at restaurants, you have to sit like, you know, 10 feet away from each other, 10 to 15 feet. Mm -hmm. There's no way Spaniards are going to do that. There's no <laughs> way. They, they, the whole point of the terrace is social interaction, drinking together. And you know, bars don't close here. Yep. They're open all night long. Yeah. So, so all these, these strange restrictions that might work in another country, I have... I have no faith in them here. There's no way. So, yeah. you know, so we're really we'll trying see. to take a very subtle approach to this and see how things work out. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, so switching gears a little bit, I want to talk about leadership because it sounds like you guys have done an incredible job um, top down in, in just inspiring your company and your teams. I really am a firm believer that culture really comes from the top. So I'm curious to hear... How did you guys lead up to the crisis? How did you build that culture so that when the crisis hit, it wasn't about reacting? It was about just kind of already capitalizing on values and leadership lessons that you had. Yep. Yeah, I, I totally agree with you. I, I've been a part of five different financial institutions. Two of them were startups. One failed miserably. One did really well. We sold to Barclays. I've been a part of international banks. I've been a part of U.S. banks. And I have, I 100% agree, it comes from the top. If your leaders have empathy, if your leaders care about people, then, you know, that just filters through, through the organization. And we're very fortunate to have that at BBVA. The main thing that we've been doing for, for several years that I think really assisted in the lead up to, to the crisis is our... It's, it's, it's a mantra. It's a, it's a way of working one team. So we don't care if you're what level you are, what your role is. We don't care where you're based. We want everyone to work as one team. We spent a year and a half building our agile organization where we removed lots and lots of layers. My team specifically went from 17 direct reports to four. Because we don't need wow. leaders, we need doers. We need people working on projects, people in the trenches building great things. And so we, we've been super focused on this one team mentality of the organization. And so when COVID hit, we were already in a mindset of, let's all work together and figure out how to manage through this. Let's all work together and figure out what's the best path for BBVA. And so that's why when I mentioned the... the, the um, the ventilators and, and accessing the things we needed most here in Spain. I mean, that was a global effort. That was a lot of different people around the world at BBVA pitching in to help out and, and make something like that happen. So we've, we've kind of always been there. The other thing that we did is we have been investing in technology, as I mentioned earlier, since really 2007. We've been super focused on remote working for a number of years. So 
when when hmm. the the government here in Spain shut down um, traveling to work and and the quarantine started, we really had no hiccups. It was pretty amazing, actually. Wow. You know, we, we we all worked from home all, virtually overnight. Of course, you know, servicing our clients and our customers in the physical environment suffered, and 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 get, getting access to all of them in a quick manner, digitally or or via video, was challenging. But in terms of our day to day work as an organization, we were up and running in twenty four hours, and we've seen no hiccups. In fact, as an organization, we've seen an uptick in some of our productivity. You know, like a lot of other yeah, organizations. Yeah, I think all organizations, yeah, have seen that. It's it's been crazy how even I, we have a smaller team, we're a tech company, we're all set up. And I was anxious that our productivity was going to go down. And I think we're at least twice as productive as before. So. Yeah. Yeah. And I think, you know, morale is interesting too across our organization. So mm. really young people in small apartments in Madrid or small apartments in Mexico City are struggling. You know, this is or Manhattan. Yeah. And they had and they're in isolation they don't have kids, they don't, they're not married, they're really struggling with it. Then you have a guy like me, he's 49 years old with two teenagers. This is the most I've ever spent with my teenagers ever. It's good and bad. Is that a good thing or a bad <laughs> it's thing? It's good and bad. <laughs> it's good and bad. Um, and, and the most I've exercised in years, you know? So, so they're, the morale of the team, if we're super connected, if we're working well, productivity is up. And and uh, and and you're able to do the things you couldn't do in the past, spend more time with your family and exercise. Then I, I think there are some positive outcomes from from this challenging environment. Yeah, I agree. I've been thinking a lot about um, potentially opening up our office as an optional workspace and just allowing those who want to get out because they can't just work from bed and live in bed the entire day. <laughs> but I do agree that there's a lot of benefit. I I actually. I don't know about you, but I think when you're a leader, you walk into the office and it's like bombs are dropping left and right. People want to talk to you. You have a lot yep. more control over your space and productivity when when you're working remotely. So I think there's good and bad, obviously. Yeah, I think what we're talking about is there's a balance, right? I, I totally agree with you that the work from home has allowed for a, an extensive amount of thinking time that we didn't have in the past. But we also partially is maybe a cultural thing, but but we do believe in in social interactions are a, a key part of good businesses. And so what we're talking about now is when we do make the, the kind of full return to the office, it will probably be a two days a week or three days a week that you're in the office two or three days from home or or, you know, in some cases, to your point earlier, some employees might just work from home all the time. That just works better for them. But but we believe in the social interactions. We believe that strong teams need time together. The whole purpose in my travels to all the countries that we're based in was purely to build relationships. And those are hard to do via this Zoom channel. You know, it's it's not yeah. it's not ideal. So so I think that's where BBVA yeah. will net out. But we're we're kind of a wait and see like all the other organizations you work with, because we don't really know what the future is going to look like with work. I cannot wait to find an excuse to visit you in Madrid as soon as I can. I <laughs> come on create, out. I will come up, come up with a meeting and and make sure that I have a reason to come. Do it. Just make sure wait, it's honestly. just make sure it's when, when we can sit at have tapas closer than fifteen feet. Right. Right. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so my last question to you, I would love to hear your advice to 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 the community. Um, 
you've obviously had a lot of different experiences, small companies, big companies, different countries. Uh, you, you're in an incredible role now. So, you know, you've, by, for all, by all standards, you've been very successful in your career. What would be your advice to some of the young marketers in terms of how to approach their career, big company, small company, focus on a particular subject uh, of marketing versus be more of a generalist? Would love to hear that. Yeah, I mean, my my I've asked I've been asked this question before, and I I maybe I'm going to give you a little bit of a non traditional answer, and that is follow your passions. I wouldn't necessarily try to designate yourself in one specific field within marketing. Follow your passions. So if you read my LinkedIn profile, I'm not a designer by background. I got a degree in economics and marketing. I've always been uh, into art. I've always been drawing and painting. I still paint today. I went to architecture school briefly, but found my path through financial institutions. Early in my career, somebody noticed that I was different, <laughs> that I wasn't the traditional finance guy in global financial institutions and that you know I was dressing differently. I was really into art and music and things that traditional finance guys aren't into. And he recognized that and he's still my great, one of my greatest mentors and leaders and friends today. Uh, and he said these words, he said, would you be interested in building an in-house design team? And Anda, this was like 2000, no bank, no <laughs> bank had a design team. No, no bank had a designer. It just was unheard of. And I was totally at first taken aback and almost felt like I had done something wrong or that perhaps I was taking a giant step back in my career. And I voiced that to the, to the president of the company. And he said, Rob, stop worrying about your career. Focus on the things you love to do and success will come. Because he recognized that I really love the design aspect of work that we were doing. And so we started building an in-house team. And I've, been, I've never looked back. We've been building design teams internationally my entire career for 17 years. And and that was completely born out of following my passions versus following, you know, a tried and true method of success in a financial institution. So, um, so I think my advice is find your passions, follow that. And perhaps you're an example of that running your own company. It's certainly a passion that you have taken. And, and those are the things that we really need people to think more about rather than Am I going to the right school? Am I getting the right degree? Am I following the, am I going to make money? Follow your passions. Yeah. I think the world is changing at a much faster pace than it ever has before. And this crisis has only made that happen faster. And as such, these uh, pathways that um, I guess we grow up thinking exist, you know, these, these yeah. career ladders um, are really starting to collapse. And so this idea of just kind of build your own career ladder and, uh, start your own creative studio, start your own company. Um, I think that's applicable whether or not you call yourself an entrepreneur. So I love that advice. Totally. Thank you, Rob. It was such a pleasure to talk to you. Oh, I really enjoyed it too. I was just going to say, I love interviewing young talent when they say, when they share that they've taken a few years off first. You know, and, and traditionally you'd be like, whoa, well, you know, you don't have the right experience. To me, it's like, that's awesome. Tell me about it. Where'd you travel to? What'd you do? You know, because I think life experiences are more critical than business experience. And, and so, you know, again, following your passions, if your passion is to ride your bike around Europe for a couple of years, 
my guess is you're going to learn a shitload from from that experience over. Why? And you learn a lot about yourself. 100%. Yep. Anyway. Cool. Well, thank you so much, Rob. This was a total pleasure. I hope we get to talk again soon and that I visit you in Madrid as, as soon as we can have tapas closer. <laughs> you're welcome anytime. Thank you. Thank you for having me on. I really appreciate it. And I, I do enjoy the content that you guys are putting out. Great work. Thank you so much. That's a, that's a really big compliment. Thank you. Thank you. Have a good rest of your day. Thanks for listening to this episode of Pros and Content with the global CMO of BBVA, Rob Brown. Again, what we really love about this conversation is the selflessness that shines through both Rob's actions and the actions of BBVA as a whole. These last few months were not about thinking of how their business was going to stay afloat. Their primary concern was the health and safety of the people in the communities they served and helping these individuals undergoing crisis as well as they could. We hope you enjoyed this episode. Please rate, review, and subscribe. And if you'd like to hear more great conversations, please visit us at prosandcontent.co.